Chapter Three of Wandle the Invader by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wandle the Invader, Chapter Three. I have no idea how long it was before Halsey came back. Snap and I were seated on a low metal bench against the wall. The effect of the paralyzing ray was wearing off. We were tingling all over, our senses still confused. Halsey stalked in upon us. "'So you are recovered?' Snap stammered. "'We—I say—we're sorry as hell we acted like that.' "'I know you are,' his voice softened. "'If I could have done anything else, believe me, I would have. But I don't think harm will come to them. They're clever.' "'Are they outside?' I asked. "'Did they find a way of meeting the Martians? How long have you been gone?' Halsey merely stared at me as though he had no intention of answering, and then the autophone on the desk buzzed. "'This is Halsey,' he said. "'Yes, I have them here. Bring them. Did you say bring them?' We could not hear the answering voice, for Halsey had the muffler in contact. "'No, I would prefer not to come. I'm watching something. I'm at the Red Spark Café. Well, I'm going back to my office presently to wait there.' he continued in code. Like Snap, I had never had occasion to learn it. The words were a strange-sounding staccato gibberish. He ended, "'I will send them, Grantline. Very well. I'll tell them to locate him. At once, yes.' He closed off the autophone. Halsey swung on us. "'You're all right now?' "'Yes,' I stood up, drawing Snap up with me. "'What is wanted of us, Colonel?' "'That's better, Greg.' He smiled, but he was still grim. "'I wanted you here to wait for this call from the Conclave of Public Safety. It met at midnight. They have ordered both of you there.' "'That's a secret meeting, isn't it?' asked Snap. "'There was no report of it over the air tonight.' "'Yes, secret.' He was leading us to the door. "'They won't need you for more than half an hour. When they finish, come back to my office. You can come openly.' He stood with his finger on the door lever. "'Good-bye, lads. Foley will lead you to the service room. You are to take a mail cylinder for Postal Switch Station 20. They'll reroute you from there to the Conclave Auditorium.' The door slid up. "'When you disembark,' he added, "'ask for Johnny Grantline. You are to sit with him.' He showed us out, and the door slid down before him. We trudged the corridor, and Snap gripped me. For myself, he whispered swiftly, I'll go to the damnable conclave because I'm ordered, but I won't stay there long. Once we get out of it, if I don't route myself back to the Red Spark, I'm a motor oiler. I agreed with him. We had a mental picture of Anita and Venza in the Red Spark's public room. Doubtless, Orentino had created a way for them to meet Molo. They would sit there in the Red Spark with that drinking party, and in less than an hour we would be back but as we crossed diagonally across an end of the main room with Foley leading us, we caught a glimpse of Molo's table. The party was still there, but Molo, Anita, and Venza were gone. We had no time to get any information. Foley abruptly left us and another man took his place. In the service room a passenger cylinder was waiting. Our guide entered it with us. At the switch station we had the breath knocked out of us. After another ten minutes in the vacuum tube, we reached our unknown destination. The cylinder slide opened. 
we found ourselves with a lone guard, and through a gloomy arcade opening Johnny Grantline was advancing to greet us. "'Well, so here you are, Greg. Hell to pay heaven going on here. Come on in, I'll tell you.' "'We were sent for,' Snap said. "'Yes, but they don't want you yet. Come in here.' He waved away the guard and led us through a padded arcade into a low-vaulted audience room, windowless and gloomy. Across it a doorway panel stood ajar. Grantline peered through it. There was the glow of light from the adjoining room and the distant murmur of many voices. Grantline closed the door. "'Sit down, and I'll tell you.' "'Where are we?' I asked. "'The Ninth Conclave Hall.' I knew its location. Lower Manhattan, high under the city roof. Grantline produced little cigarette cylinders. "'Steady your nerves, lads. You'll need it.' He grinned at us. The hand with which he lighted my cylinder was steady as a tower base, but he was excited. I could see it by the glint in his eyes and hear it in his voice. "'What's going on?' Snap demanded. "'It's about this invading planet. By the gods, when you hear what's really been learned about it—' "'Well, what?' I asked. He sketched what he had learned this night at the Conclave. The mysterious invader was inhabited. "'How do they know that?' Snap put in. Wait, I'll tell you the rest of it. The accursed thing changes its orbit. It banks and turns like a spaceship. It's stopped out in space. It's poised out there now between Mars and Jupiter. A world about a fifth the size of the moon, and the beings on it can control its movements. They brought it in from interstellar space into our solar system. Evidently, the point they've reached now is far as they want to come. They've poised out there, getting ready to attack, not only us, but Mars and Venus simultaneously." Grantline gazed at us through the smoke of his cigarette. He was much like Snap, small, wiry, brisk of movement and manner, but older. His hair was graying at the temples. His voice carried the authority of one accustomed to commanding men. "'Don't ask me for the technicalities of how they reached these conclusions. I'm no astronomer.' I'm only telling you their conclusions and what their discussions have been here for the past hour." Heaven knows we had no inclination to dispute him. What we had seen and heard at the Red Spark tallied with his words. He went on swiftly. The attack, of whatever nature it may be, is impending at once. Not next month or next week, but now. Lord Greg, I don't blame you for staring like that. You don't know what's been going on for the past two days on Earth and Venus and Mars. It's all been suppressed. Neither did I until I heard it here tonight. The USW, the Martian Union, the Venus Free State are all preparing for war. Every government spaceship on Earth is being commissioned. We're not going to sit around and wait for invaders to land. The war won't be fought on Earth if we can help it." We stared. Snap asked, what makes them so sure? That war is coming? Plenty. This new planet has sent out spaceships. The planet itself is hovering sixty million miles away from us, about forty million miles from Mars and close to ninety million from Venus. Perhaps its leaders think that's the most strategic spot. Then it sent out spaceships, three of them. One is hovering close to Venus, another is near Mars, and the third is some two hundred thousand miles off Earth. Several of our interplanetary freighters are overdue. 
it seems now that they must have encountered these invading ships and been destroyed. Still more and worse. These three hovering ships have already landed the enemy on Mars and Venus. The Helio reports mention mysterious encounters in Ferox Shan and Grebar. For three or four days Mars has been in a panic of apprehension, Venus almost as bad. And some have landed here, not many perhaps, but one has been captured. A thing. God, it's almost beyond description." We could well agree with that, since Snap and I had just seen one. "'They've got it here,' Grantline was saying. "'They've tried to make it talk. They can't, but they're going to try again.' He jumped to his feet and went to the door. "'They're bringing it in.' Upon his face was a look of awed horror. We stood crowding the small door-oval. It gave onto a darkened balcony of the conclave hall. The girders of the city roof were over us. There were a few official spectators sitting up here in the dark on the balcony, but none noticed us. The lower floor of the hall was lighted. Around the polished oblong tables perhaps a hundred scientists and high government officials of the three worlds were seated. Near the center of the hall was a small dais platform. On a table there someone had just placed a circular black box, similar to the one we had seen previously. The hall was hushed and tense. On the dais stood a group of Earth officials. One of them spoke. "'Here it is, gentlemen. And this time, by God, we'll make it speak.' Grantline whispered. "'That's the War Secretary from Greater London.' I recognized him. Braley, Commander-in-Chief of the Land, Air, Water, and Space Armies of the United States of the World. He was gigantic in stature, with a great shock of gray-white hair a commanding figure, if there ever was one. Beside him, Nippur, the Japanese representative in Greater New York, seemed a pygmy. The acoustics of the silent hall carried his soft voice up to us. "'I would be afraid of drugs. Will we use force? It is vital.' "'Yes, by God, anything.' It seemed that everyone in the hall must be shuddering. I could feel it like an aura pounding up at me. Braley lifted the box-lid, reached in, and raised the horrible thing. He held it up, a two-foot ball of palpitating gray-white membrane, another living brain. "'Now, damn you, you're going to talk to us. Understand that? We're going to make you talk. Get that box out of the way.' They flung the box to the floor, and Braley placed the brain on the table. A glare of light, focused on it, showed beneath the stretched taut membrane the convolutions of the brain, like tangled purple worms. The blood vessel seemed distended, almost to bursting now. The gruesome face, with popping eyes and that gaping mouth, showed a horrible travesty of terror. From where its ears should have been, a crooked little arm of flabby, gray-white flesh came down, one on each side, and braced the table and I saw now that it had a shriveled body, or at least little legs, bent, almost crushed under by its weight. "'Now, damn you,' Braley said, rubbing off his hands on a rough towel, "'for the last time will you talk?' The goggling eyes held a terrified but baleful gaze upon Braley's face. Did it understand? The eyes were fronted our way, and suddenly their glance swung up so that I seemed for an instant to see down into them and it struck me then. This was a thing of greater intelligence than my own. 
a humanoid, with brains so developed that through myriad generations the body was shriveled, almost gone. A mind was housed there, and intelligence housed in this monstrous brain. Were these the beings of the new planet which had come to attack us? But how could this helpless creature, incapable of almost everything, obviously save thought, do the work of its world? Then I recalled again that insulated room of the Red Spark Café, the thin, ten-foot hooded shape which was carrying the box. Was that, perhaps, an opposite type of being with the brain submerged, dwarfed, and the body paramount? Were there, on this mysterious planet, two coexisting types, each a specialist, one for the physical work and the other for the mental? I stood with Snap and Grantline in that dark balcony doorway, gazing down to where their giant brain stood braced upon its shriveled arms and legs, and realized why we of Earth and Venus and Mars are all cast in the same mold we call human. It is a little family of planets, here in our solar system. For countless eons we have been close neighbors. The same sunlight, the same general conditions of life, the same seed, were strewn here by a wise creator. A man from the Orient is different from an Anglo-Saxon. A man of Mars differs a little more. But basically they are the same. Yet confronting us now was a new type, from realms of interstellar space far beyond our solar system. "'For the last time, will you talk?' snapped Brayley. There was another interval of silence. The eyes of the brain were very watchful. Its gaze roved the hall as though it were seeking for help. It shifted its little arms on the table, seemingly exhausted from the physical effort of supporting itself. Brayley's voice came again. "'Doubtless you can feel pain acutely. We shall see.' With what effort of will to overcome his revulsion we may only guess, he reached forward and pinched the little arm. The result was electrifying. From the upended slit of mouth in that goggling face came a scream. It pierced the heavy tense silence of the hall, ghastly in its timber, like nothing any of us had ever heard before. And in it was conveyed agony as though Brayley had not merely pinched that flabby arm, but had thrust a red-hot knife into its vitals. The brain could feel pain indeed. It crouched with stiffened arms and legs. The membrane of its great head seemed to bulge with greater distension. The knotted blood-vessels were gorged with purple blood. The eyes rolled. Then it closed its mouth. Its gaze steadied upon Brayley's face so baleful a gaze that, as I could see the reflection of its luminous purple glow, a shudder of fear and revulsion swept me. "'So, you did not like that?' Brayley steadied his voice. "'If you don't want more, you had better speak. How did you get here on earth? What are you trying to do here?' There seemed an interminable silence. Then Nippur took a menacing step forward. "'Speak! We will force it from you!' and then it spoke. Do not touch me again. Indescribable voice. Human, animal, or monster, no one could say. But the words were clear, precise, and for all their terror they seemed to hold an infinite command. A wave of excitement swept the hall, but Brayley's gesture silenced it. 
he leapt forward and bent low over the palpitating brain. So, you can talk. You came as an enemy. We have given you every chance today for friendship, and you have refused. What are you trying to do to us? It only glared. Speak! I will not tell you anything. Oh, yes, you will. No. All the men on the platform were crowding close to it now. Speak! ordered Brayley again. Here in Greater New York is a hiding place. Where is it? No answer. Where is it? You are perhaps a leader of your world. I lead ours, and I'm going to master you now. Where is this hiding place? The thing suddenly laughed, a gruesome, eerie cackle. You will know when it is too late. I think it is too late already. Too late for what? To save your world. Doomed, your three worlds. Don't touch me! It ended with a scream of apprehension as Nippor grasped the crooked little arm. Tear us! No! it screamed again. Let me go! Tear us! Nippor strengthened his squeezing grip. The thing was writhing, the thin ball of membrane palpitating, heaving. And suddenly it burst. Over all its purpled surface, blood came with a gush. Nippor and Braley staggered backward. The scream of the brain ended in a choking gurgle. The little legs and tiny body wilted under it. The round ball of membrane sank to the table. It rolled sidewise upon one arm and ear, and in a moment its palpitation ceased. A purple-red mass of blood, it lay deflated and flabby. It was dead. End of chapter 3